Welcome to the Peds NP. I'm Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University. And welcome back from spring break to my students. Spring has definitely sprung because I am seeing red-eyed kids all over the clinic who completely forgot that the diagnosis of allergic conjunctivitis that they received last year wasn't just part of the great dumpster fire of 2020. No, they will have seasonal allergies every single year. Sorry, bud. Put it on the calendar to take your Claritin and your Flonase. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today. Today, I have much more important and obscure topics to tackle, like how do you know when a patient classifies as toxic versus non-toxic? But before we get to that, I want to give you a piece of advice on behalf of your future or current employer and the health insurance companies that pay them back. When you see a patient in the outpatient clinic, the ER, the OR, or as an inpatient, every patient gets a diagnosis every single time. We often don't talk about insurance payers in grad school, but I wish we did. It's like how my parents protected me from the realities of adult life when I was in high school and college. Because you're such a good student, we want you to focus on your schoolwork, they told me. And then I get out of undergrad and I'm like, wait a minute. I know how to name the bird and frog calls of native North Carolina species, but I don't know how to do my taxes. The diagnosis helps us assess for the presence of illness and guides the clinical care of our patients. It also justifies the visit and, along with our thorough and thoughtful clinical notes, the reimbursement. There may be times when we leave the diagnosis open-ended, as we saw this week with a young infant or child who has an early presentation of fever without source. It's not uncommon for parents to present to the ED with a previously well-immunized child who's had fever for like two hours. We just might need a few more hours to let those other symptoms appear so that we can guide our management. Vomiting alone is another common symptom that I like to use that helps us keep it open-ended. I don't know yet if it's a UTI, a bowel obstruction, or a brain tumor. Or sometimes your diagnosis might be parental concern. They've brought their child in to be examined and rule out whatever scary thing they thought they had. I once had a parent bring in her child because the taste buds on his tongue were discolored from eating so many warhead sour candies. I warn students and providers from using worried well as the diagnosis and instead use a physical exam finding or a symptom complaint in order to better classify the presentation so that the differential diagnosis is intentionally left open-ended. What's more, insurance companies won't pay you back for worried well. And for well children, they get a diagnosis too. Z00.129, encounter for routine child health examination without abnormal findings. There's also an option for abnormal findings, meaning that you should also add a secondary diagnosis for whatever it is that you found. Simply because there may not be a big differential to work up on these kids doesn't mean that we skip giving them a diagnosis. Now let's get on to the juicy details of the week. If you're not used to seeing infants, then they might be a very scary population for you to care for. And I want you to keep that healthy fear of them because that means that you're going to think critically and be overly cautious about an age group that has high risk for serious bacterial infections. A big question I heard over and over again this week was, how was I supposed to decide that this kid is sick? Shouldn't she get an LP? After all, she was clinically dehydrated, fussy and irritable. She had high fever. 
Part of the answer to that question is it's complicated. It's complicated to work through a case study in written word compared to seeing it in person and doing your own history and physical exam. So part of that inherently difficult part is that I was trying to convey certain principles using words instead of your clinical acumen in person. It's hard for me to write a patient that is sick and make you appropriately worried about them and then fix her in the next paragraph so that we're not going into the acute care realm or spending hours on the case, which is what would actually happen in real life. One of the take-homes I wanted you to get was that our six-month-old female who looked terrible at the beginning of the case, as we said, she was dehydrated, irritable, somewhat inconsolable, and febrile. She was scary. But here's where you can pick up on the key in that case. After a dose of ibuprofen and some Pedialyte, the patient's fever came down. She's now sitting comfortably in her mother's arms, drinking a bottle and smiling at her. She's playing with your stethoscope and giggling. Her heart rate is now... 140 beats per minute, respiratory rate of 30, and a temp of 38.1. That's it. Her vitals are normalizing, and so is her mental status. Children are allowed to feel bad when they have high fever, but only for a little while. Remember that the purpose of Tylenol and ibuprofen is to take that fever from uncomfortable to comfortable. We needed to see that temp normalize. We needed to see her tachycardia subside. And remember that persistent tachycardia can be an early sign of sepsis. And we needed to see her acting appropriate for her age. Ibuprofen won't take a septic or meningitic child and turn them into a well child, but these couple of interventions and 30 or 45 minutes of watching her meant the difference between getting an LP and getting to go home. The decision about when to perform a lumbar puncture fits in a similarly gray area. Some providers might refer an inconsolable six-month-old child right away to get a full septic workup and LP. But I'm a little less trigger-happy on invasive procedures when a patient has had their two-, four-, and six-month immunizations. Therefore, it could be reasonable, remember how much I love the word reasonable, to give the child an antipyretic, some fluids, and see how she is in an hour or so, and a lack of improvement is a full-court press towards a workup. Now, if you wanted to get a CBC and blood culture immediately upon seeing this child, then I really wouldn't fault you. But you also need to add a urine because remember that 5% of fever without source in this age group is an SBI, and a majority of these SBIs are a UTI or pyelonephritis. However, if you got that CBC, a normal white blood cell count would not make us feel less anxious about an ill-appearing child because leukocytosis would be a late sign of many infections. Don't get me wrong, I am not downplaying the power of a CBC appropriately ordered in a sick patient. If you identify a left shift with a bandemia, then it is very valuable. What I'm saying is don't let a normal CBC lull you into complacency in thinking that an ill-appearing child is actually well. You will hear me fuss when you get a CBC in a well-appearing vaccinated child with a source. Don't do it. You're more likely to find a leukopenia from viral suppression in their bone marrow, and that is going to leave you chasing abnormal labs for months, maybe even a referral to Hemonc. But that's a topic for a couple weeks from now when we cover Hemonc. 
it's important that you recognize that certain items didn't fit into her differential diagnosis. And let me explain why. When this fully immunized six-month female presented, she was ill-appearing and she lacked a source of infection, right? Remember that fever without source is a diagnosis of exclusion, and we need to rule out certain more concerning diagnoses before we go saying that this might be a virus. So on our differential diagnosis in this initial presentation of fever without source is sepsis, bacterial viral meningitis, and UTI. What wasn't on it was occult bacteremia because she appeared too ill to have occult bacteremia. We use the term occult bacteremia when there is a positive blood culture in a well-appearing child. Similarly, occult pneumonia is theoretically possible, but pretty rare, and most children with pneumonia are going to have cough, tachypnea, fever, rails, or a low oxygen sat. You should be worried about a pneumonia and get a chest x-ray if a patient has respiratory symptoms or a white blood cell count greater than 20,000. Her differential diagnosis should not include anything that we could find with a source on exam. So that includes an acute otitis media, gingivostomatitis, or a URI. We can cross our fingers and hope that it might reveal itself in a couple days as roseola, which is a common infection in children under age 2 caused by the human herpes virus 6 and leads to a classic rash as the fever resolves. But we don't want to put our money on that horse just yet because of the risk of SBI in this patient is still quite high. So you brilliantly obtained a urinalysis and culture from a cath specimen, and you've got leukes, nitrites, and blood. This explains the fever, the irritability, and the dehydration. An interesting article came out in pediatrics last month that showed that children less than 24 months, there's a decrease in the number of white blood cells per high power field needed to predict a positive urine culture if the urine is dilute. Meaning the lower the specific gravity, the lower the white blood cell threshold should be. This was a really well done study with a sample size over 24,000. Though it should be noted that they excluded patients with mixed or normal urogenital flora, which might make their results look more accurate. The other differences included a large demographic of Hispanic patients, which led to higher UTI rates based on presumed genetic and cultural differences in this population. They stratified the decision-making to show the distinction of pyuria at three different urine concentrations. A low specific gravity needed a white blood cell count of three to predict a positive urine culture. Moderately concentrated urine needed a white blood cell count of six to do the same thing. And highly concentrated urine with a specific gravity greater than 1.02 needed eight white blood cells to predict a UTI. All in all, they re-emphasized that positive leukesterase is a strong indicator of positive urine culture regardless of urine concentration. Now that we've identified the UTI, you need to manage it with the understanding that in a febrile infant that may or may not have vomiting, that you should treat this like pyelonephritis. The implication here is that we should choose an antibiotic that concentrates in the kidneys to best treat this infection. I tend to choose a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftonir because of the overall good sensitivity patterns across the United States and the ease of taking it daily. I know you're thinking that pyelonephritis sounds scary, and it is because we're talking about renal parenchymal infection that can lead to scarring and end organ damage, but it can be effectively treated with oral antibiotics. 
In a patient like this who came in looking ill, I'd make sure that she can tolerate a PO dose in the ED or the office before sending her home with a 10 to 14 day course. Criteria for admission for parenteral antibiotics would be not tolerating the PO medication or a continued ill appearance and or vomiting that would need IV hydration. In an older child, you can decipher pyelonephritis from plain old cystitis if the patient has fever, vomiting, or CVA tenderness, none of which are typically present in cystitis. Your job is unfortunately not done once you discharge the patient because you're going to watch the culture and sensitivities closely over the next couple of days. It's important when you get the sensitivities back to look at the MIC for your antibiotic choice because this can give you an idea of whether you could have a recurrence if the patient doesn't take the antibiotic as instructed. If the MIC is high, meaning that the minimum inhibitory concentration of the drug needed to stop the growth of bacteria requires a lot of drug, then the report will technically state that the pathogen is sensitive, but the patient has to be practically perfect with taking the antibiotic in order to adequately treat the infection. I see this happen a lot with Bactrim. When I started my career, there was such high Bactrim resistance that I never even bothered to choose it as an empiric option. It was always resistant. It seemed like many in the medical community did the same thing, and over the course of many years, Bactrim initially became sensitive with a high MIC, and now I'm actually seeing a low MIC, which puts it back on a list of options to treat infections. You'll want to use community resistance patterns in your area to choose the right empiric antibiotics before your culture comes back. This is usually available through an academically affiliated hospital if you live near a tertiary care center or through your local health department. Lastly, as the primary care provider, you need to coordinate appropriate follow-up and imaging for this age group. First, a renal ultrasound, then VCUG if the renal ultrasound is abnormal, so that we can identify an underlying reflux that places this child at increased risk for pyelonephritis. If you found this podcast helpful, you might want to go back and check out episode three of the Peds NP, Friday Fever at Five, which discusses fever without source more in depth and puts a practical spin on decision making when you've got a weekend out of the office right ahead of you. Can you believe that that's just the tip of the iceberg on fever without source? There's a lot to consider from age to immunizations to common pathogens before you even take your history and physical exam into account. And with the ever-changing literature on procalcitonin as an indicator of severe illness, you've got a lot on your plate. So take a moment to congratulate yourself on making it through one of the most complicated topics in pediatrics. You're doing great. Just know that there's not always a perfect answer, but when you're practicing evidence-based medicine with a strong knowledge base, you're going to be doing the right thing for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.